Our mystic this month is Ralph Waldo Emerson. It's going to be a good month. It's going to be a good month. The quintessential American mystic. Emerson gave America a sense of its own agency, its own power, gave Americans a greater and deeper declaration of independence spiritually and otherwise. This quote sort of sums up Emerson. A man, a woman, a person should learn to detect and watch that gleam of light which flashes across her mind from within, more than the luster of the firmament of bards and sages. Yet he dismisses without notice his own thought, because it's his. In every work of genius, we recognize our own rejected thoughts. They come back to us with a certain alienated majesty. That's kind of Emerson right there. Trust yourself. Listen to yourself. Find your way. Do your dance. And be the deepest person attached to the divine, attached to the source that you can be. That is sort of the Emersonian agenda. Born in 1803 in Boston to a literary mother and a minister father, a Unitarian minister who died when Emerson was eight years old. He was raised by his mother and by an aunt that he loved very much, who influenced him greatly. He went to Boston Latin at nine and um, then was admitted to Harvard College. And he taught a little bit after college and um, thought about studying law, thought about doing some things. But eventually he ended up at the Divinity School at Harvard and Cambridge. Now, I'm going to give you just a little bit of nerd history here because I cannot help myself. <laughs> About the time he was born, the Hollis professorship at Harvard um, was the source of an intense fight between the Puritans and the more progressive wing of Christian thought at that time, a fight between the traditionalists and the non-traditionalists, the progressive wing, who had officially become known as Unitarians, won that struggle, and the trajectory of the school was set. Emerson ended up at the Divinity School in 1824. In 1829, he was called to Second Church in Boston, and um, it was at that time a Unitarian church. It had been congregational before. It was the Unitarian church um, and the Puritan church where Increase and Cotton Mather both served. In 1832, after three short years, Emerson walked away. He walked away because he couldn't deal with the idea of communion. He just did not think that Jesus would be pleased with that particular um, ritual. And he also walked away because he, I think Emerson might have been a little high maintenance. Um, he... Uh, he did not like public prayer. He was like, I only want to pray when the Spirit leads me. Well, 
you know, put on your big boy pants, Emerson, like, you know, pray, pray. But he just, he did not like it. So I think he might have been like a closet Pentecostal or something. He only wanted to pray when the Spirit moved him. So he left the church. All right. Early on, he was in deep disagreement with some of the important parts of even the progressive wing of the Protestant church. So that freed him up. It enabled him to write essays and do lectures. He just lectured all the time in New England, in the Mid-Atlantic, in the Midwest. He loved to write on nature, the essence of humanity, the way to wisdom, self-reliance, nature, the American scholar, all these all these essays he became famous for. And all of this helped to establish the transcendentalist movement in America. He was kind of the foundation of it, and a lot of his ideas emerged from that. He was a romantic, he was an idealist. He inspired young clergy like Theodore Parker and young uh, thinkers like Henry David Thoreau, And because he was raised by his mom and his aunt, he made sure that when the Transcendentalist Club came along, that women were well um, a part of it, like Margaret Fuller and so on. This Transcendentalist idea, I'm sure Ariana is going to talk about this um, a lot, but this Transcendentalist idea is summarized in this quote. We live in succession in division, in parts, in particles. Meantime, within us is the soul of the whole, the wise silence, the universal beauty to which every part and particle is equally related, the eternal one. And this deep power in which we exist and whose beatitude is all accessible to us is not only self-sufficing and perfect in every hour, but the act of seeing and the thing seen, the seer and the spectacle, the subject and the object are one. Are one. We see the whole world piece by piece as the sun, the moon, the animal, the tree, but the whole of which these are shining parts is the soul. All right, bye everybody. See, <laughs> that's all you got to know. That's all you got to know. <clears throat> but I've got like 10 more minutes, so I'm going to keep going. <laughs> Emerson's convinced that intuition outperforms ob- objectivity and rationalism, and that the individual is part of the oversoul or the divine, and that as a part of that, each person is connected to all. All right, so today I want to focus, because I, I, I have a feeling Ariana is going to do lots on transcendentalism. I want to focus on one small little episode in Emerson's life and use that as a springboard to say, so what? If Emerson were here, by the way, if I was sitting there and Ralph Waldo Emerson was right there, Waldo, um, he'd be like, why are you reading me? Write your own book. But... It's ironic, but there's stuff to learn here. Six years after he left the pulpit at Second Church, 
and only having been a minister for three years before he resigned and left the ministry altogether. He was asked by the graduating class at the Divinity School to come and give a talk about what they needed to know before they entered the ministry. It's known as the Divinity School Address, and it was given in the summer of 1838. And the way that Emerson begins that essay, he describes that summer in 1838, and it sounds perfect. The nights were cool. The flowers were just green and alive. You could smell the hay. Imagine smelling hay in Boston right now. But then you could. It is a profound and liberating bit of religious history in American life. Emerson comes into that graduating class of students, and depending on your viewpoint, he either blew the house apart or he set them free. Ushers in a new day, a new dawn, a new path. In this essay, which took about 45 minutes, I, I, I see that he, he, he lifts up two problems. The first is that the church is deadly boring and irrelevant to contemporary life. The second is a bit more nuanced, but it goes something like this. The United States in its infancy, in its youngness, was academically, socially, culturally, religiously looking back to Europe. It hadn't found its voice. It hadn't found its footing. So Emerson, in his lectures and his essays, trying to get America to find its own way. Now, spiritually and religiously for Emerson, he saw that this looking backwards meant that the church had been captured by a rigid and deadly conformity to ideas that served to act as if God had spoken 2,000 years ago or 1,800 years ago, whenever, but never spoke again. So once we get the problem, we'll take a look at what Emerson decided was the solution. Emerson rails against formalism in the pulpit. Whenever the pulpit is usurped by a formalist, then is the worshiper defrauded and disconsolate. Emerson lifts up in a room full of New England, Boston ministers, lifts up the idea that he had recently gone to church and it was so deadly boring that he was tempted never to go to church again. So this is in a group of ministers and professors. And um, they all had to be like, was that, was that me? I don't know. <clears throat> He said, a snowstorm was falling outside. The snowstorm was real. The preacher merely spectral. And the eye felt the sad contrast in looking at him and then out the window behind him into the beautiful snow. He had lived in, faint, in vain. He had not one word intimating that he had laughed or wept was married or in love, had been commended or cheated or chagrined. If he had ever lived and acted, we were none the wiser for it. The whole goal of religion is to convert ideas into life and life into truth. 
and he had not learned it. Not one fact in all of his experience had he yet imported into his doctrine. All right, so he goes on and on, right? Emerson says, the true preacher can be known by this, that he deals out to people his life, her life. Life passed through the fire of thought. Now, we were just talking about this because somebody almost accidentally uh, parked in my parking spot. You know? <laughs> I didn't even park in the parking spot. And, um, you know, there's a minister's parking spot, and somebody came up to me and said, I almost parked in there. And me too, somebody else said. And um, I said, Oh, well, you know about the idea of the priesthood of all believers, right? priesthood of all believers is that your life is a gospel. That the the ups and the downs, the challenges, the setbacks, the defeats, the triumphs, the, the ambitions, all of that passed through the fire of thought is a gospel. The gospel of Craig, the gospel of Don, the gospel of Connie. Your insights are salvific. Your insights are salvific. So that's the first issue. Irrelevant faith, irrelevant church. The second defect. Is that the open... um, Well, the the second defect of the limited way of using the mind of Christ is a consequence of the first. That the moral nature, that the law of laws, whose whose revelations introduce greatness, God himself, into the open soul, is not explored as the fountain of the established teaching in a society. Men have come to speak of the revelation as somewhat long ago given and done, as if God were dead. The injury of faith throttles the preacher, and the goodliest of institutions become an uncertain and inarticulate voice. Why? Because they're, 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 they're focused on rigid doctrines, revelation that happened a long time ago, but never again. And what happens? You become uncertain and inarticulate. If you're looking at the wrong spot, you become paralyzed. So you know my wife is a congregationalist minister. I tease her all the time about the fact that the Unitarians, which is what I am, you know, were the progressive wing of that fight, and the Congregationalists were the boring conservative part of that fight. And then, and then she reminds me, everything Emerson wrote, he wrote against Unitarians. So that, uh, you know, that's, that's fine. So it all works out. So they have a logo that is a comma. They have a logo that is a comma and a slogan that says, God is still speaking. It comes from a quote by someone who said, never put a period where God puts a comma. Isn't that great? Yeah, I love that. All right. Um, Emerson's saying, 
you keep putting a period where God's putting a comma. For goodness sakes, and, you know, for goodness sakes, revelation is ongoing. So what is the answer? What is the answer to all this? There are three. Well, I mean, there are more than three, but, you know, he, I want to focus on three. First, intuition. That which is best is that which gives me to myself. That which is best is what, that which gives me to myself. So, um, it cannot be received at second hand, Emerson says. Truth cannot be received at second hand. It is an intuition. It is not instruction, but provocation that I can receive. I can be provoked. I can be drawn out. I can be called out. What he announces, I must find true in me or wholly reject. Right? Let this faith depart. And every word it speaks. The church falls. The state falls. Art falls. The doctrine of the divine nature of humanity is the answer. Right? The indwelling supreme spirit cannot be gotten rid of. What inspires is that which the other person already knows because the other person is already attached to the divine. That which shows God in me fortifies me. That which shows God in me fortifies me. And I can only know it by intuition. So do you see now why um, Fillmore and the people behind Science of Mind and the Center for Spiritual Living and Unity and all those, all those folks, they really found this inspiring. All right. The second solution. Soul, soul, and more soul. In the soul, let redemption be sought. Not in revelation that's outside of yourself. Not in ideas that are limiting. But in the good nature of humanity, which is tied to the Almighty. This soul, which is part and parcel of every other soul, is the hope of the world. Whenever a man comes, whenever someone is newly born, whenever a person arrives to their deepest self, there comes a revolution. The third one. First, intuition. Second, soul. The third. Here's what he told those, those kids, those young men. They were all men. Um, <clears throat> you yourself are newborn bards of the Holy Spirit. Cast behind you all conformity. Acquaint 
your people with God at the first hand. Live with the privilege of the immeasurable mind. There are resources within you that have not yet been expressed, that have not yet been drawn. You are newborn bards of the Holy Spirit. I look for the hour, Emerson said, when that supreme beauty which ravished the souls of those Eastern men and through their lips spoke oracles to all time shall speak here also. I look for the new teacher that, so, that shall follow so far those shining laws that he shall see them come full circle. You are the newborn bards of the Holy Spirit. Do not conform. Do not look backwards. Your life is the gospel story. You know it because you're attached to the source, whether you realize it or not. So, all the old people in that essay freaked out. All the young people got super inspired. But there's wisdom. There's wisdom in there. And what is it? One, anything that Jesus or the Buddha or Muhammad or Moses or Dorothy Day or anybody else had that enabled them to express divinity and express the good You've got to. You've got to. And anything that those young ministers had that made them newborn bards of the Holy Spirit, you have to. So go and do your dance. <laughs>